Well, we are in Isaiah chapter 40 this week. I have no idea where you guys were last week or where you'll be next week, but today we're in Isaiah 40. It's just part of the adventure of being a part of this congregation, right? So Isaiah was a prophet, and he was a prophet during a resurgence of faith in Judah, uh, which was the southern kingdom. At the time that he was uh, a prophet, the people of God, the nation of Israel, was divided into two separate kingdoms. And the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, was being led by one of the great kings at this time, King Hezekiah, one of the godly kings of Judah. Uh, and in fact, Isaiah was likely related to Hezekiah. I believe he was the first cousin three times removed, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, Isaiah is unique among the prophets in Scripture in that he, his message is written for more than one audience, or at least that's how most conservative scholars look at this, maybe as many as three different audiences. So the first 39 chapters is uh, primarily addressed to Judah in his own day. They were uh, they thought they were going strong, but the truth was that the writing was on the wall and that judgment was coming. And so those first 39 chapters, there are a few little rays of sunshine that come through, but mostly it was about the judgment that was going to be coming on them through Babylon. And then when we get to chapter 40, and, I, and it's chapter 40 uh, on through about chapter 55, the audience, is, uh, uh, the audience that Isaiah is speaking to is the people who are in that exile uh, to encourage them as they wait on their rescue from God. And then the last chapters are usually, or I shouldn't say usually, but they are, are sometimes looked at by scholars as being written to those who are about to come back home to, to be an encouragement and to give them direction. So as we're looking here uh, in chapter 40, we're in that middle section where, where Isaiah is speaking to those who are in exile who are still waiting for the eventual return to the promised land. And, and there are a couple major promises of God that are at stake here. One is that the promised land will be given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the land is conquered by a powerful foreign nation and all the people are taken away into exile, well, uh, when has an exiled people ever been let go to go back to their land? It had never happened before. And so how is that promise being fulfilled? And then another one is, which is perhaps more significant, certainly more significant for us today who are mostly Gentiles, the promise of the Davidic covenant, that there would never cease to be a descendant of David on the throne forever. And that is referring to the Messiah. So if they are, uh, if, if Judah's great sin and idolatry has left them in a state where I mean, where even is David's throne anymore at this point? How could it possibly be fulfilled if they are conquered? The throne is gone. The people are in captivity. The land is desolate. And so uh, these people in exile would be in a terrible emotional and spiritual state to say nothing of their physical condition. They would be brokenhearted. Their beloved country had fallen. Uh, they would be in a state of shock. How could this have happened? Did they misunderstand God's word? And the two biggest and heaviest questions on their minds would probably be, is our God weaker than the gods of Babylon? Is that why this happened? Has our God been defeated by them? And the second question would be, 
Has our sin separated us from God forever? And Isaiah addresses both of these questions throughout the remainder of this book, and he highlights them in the text that we're considering this morning. So as we open this passage in chapter 40, Isaiah begins with a beautiful word, comfort. In fact, he even says it twice. So let's look at Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, not, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. 
To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, this powerful message for us today. God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I think the, your bulletin has the, the three, uh, the outline there with the three divisions. So in the first part, God's willingness to save. So this answers one of the two questions that people in exile would have. Has our sin separated us permanently from God so that he's not interested in us anymore? And so Isaiah begins right away with that word comfort. And comfort is a beautiful word. Uh, it means a lot more than simply to be comfortable. Uh, comfortable is nice. Relaxation. A comfy blanket. A cat on the lap. That's all good things. But uh, a lot more is meant here than simply to be comfortable. To comfort is to give strength and hope. It is to ease grief and trouble. It's not making a relatively easy life even easier or more comfortable. It's about being given what we lack and what we so desperately need. Strength and courage to carry on. Confidence in the future fulfillment of the promises of God. Lightening a terrible burden. And this comfort that Isaiah mentions is coming from God himself. Yes, they will have to endure hard times. I mean, they were in the midst of that right then. But God is bringing comfort. In fact, true comfort can only come from God. We seek comfort, though, in our lives from all sorts of different places and things. We look for comfort in friends and family or maybe a special place or a vacation spot. We also seek comfort from verbs, a distraction to take our mind off of our troubles temporarily. We even seek comfort from adjectives like being financially secure or beautiful or successful or organized. So where do you look for comfort and where do you go for that peace? Relaxing activities like TV or video games or a hobby, procrastination, alcohol, throwing yourself into your work, these things can provide a measure of temporary relief, but it is only temporary. And certainly we can use good things that God has given us in measured ways as long as they don't become the ultimate thing in our life. God's comfort settles us, calms our minds, strengthens us, focuses us on truth and what really matters. And that's because God's comfort is real and whole and deep and because he's always with us, he's always there to be our comforter. So where do you need comfort in your life right now?
Could you seek that comfort more directly from God instead of your usual sources? Then in verse 2, Isaiah begins to address the fear of their sin, having put them out of reach of God's salvation. The exiles would feel sure that all was lost, uh, and the evidence of God's judgment was all around them. I mean, they were in a very uh, wicked, in the midst of a very wicked empire, the Babylonian Empire. The guilt of sin can weigh on us terribly, can't it? I mean, there, there are some sins of ours that we don't mind very much, unfortunately, but some of our sins and some of our guilt is crushing in their burden of guilt. Thus, God's message to the exiles and to us is like cool water in the desert when he says, speak tenderly to them. So this is not an I told you so or I warned you, you should have listened to me kind of message, even though God would have had the right to say that to the exiles in Babylon. But instead, he, he says, speak tenderly. And Isaiah is sent to tell them that this Babylonian captivity, it, it was a punishment, not a destruction. It might look like destruction, but it's punishment, which is by its nature temporary and purposeful. And now, and when he says now that punishment is complete, this is what they like to call the prophetic, uh, prophetic perfect tense. Because Isaiah is speaking about future things as if they have happened already. Uh, because they are so certain in, that they're in their happening. And so he says a time is coming when your punishment for your sins will be completely uh, paid for, completely forgiven. So no, your sin cannot permanently separate you from your God. Furthermore, in verses 3 to 5, uh, he talks about God's determination. The Lord God himself is the one who's coming to rescue his helpless people. A herald cries out for all people to make ready for the coming of our God. He's coming swiftly and nothing is going to slow or impede him. He says, mountains are to be lowered. The valleys are to be raised up. The broken ground is to be repaired. I don't know if the angels use pickaxes or infinity stones, but they get the job done when they are set to the task. And this is a God who is not reluctant to bail us out of our wayward, uh, or he's not uh, uh, reluctant to bail out our wayward selves uh, when we are in yet another fine mess. He is the prodigal father who runs out to save his prodigal son. And then in verses 6 to 8, we see that God's word cannot be taken back. It is permanent. It stands forever. Human frailty here is contrasted with the certainty of God's word by describing all flesh as grass. Now, in the spring and summer, it can be hard, harder to recognize that grass is not this indomitable power that you have to mow week after week just to keep up with it. But uh, if you are living in a dry land as they were, then it does not take very much for the grass to get withered and destroyed. And when he says that all flesh is grass, this goes for the sinning Judeans and their flesh, but it also goes for the mighty Babylonians who seemed all powerful to these Jews who were in captivity. And then he also says all their beauty, or also that word beauty could be translated as goodness or faithfulness. Uh, it's like the flowers of the field. It's beautiful, but it's temporary. And I'll come back to that point in just a moment. But 
God alone can save his people. And when he saves, there's nothing Babylon or any other force in the world can do to stop him. The breath of the Lord blows on them and they wither. And I guarantee you that there's no trouble that you're facing, at least uh, in your life, that is as outwardly hopeless as what the Israelites were facing or felt like they were facing in their captivity. As they looked at their lives, they saw not only their own individual lives were a ruin, but everything was ruined. God was, if not dead, at least impotent. And so Isaiah is writing to encourage them, and it should be all the more an encouragement for us today. All flesh, all that is created and finite and dependent on God for its very experience, Existence is like grass. It is temporary, it is frail, it is fading. Contrasted with God's word, which stands forever. Which doesn't mean that we always get the diagnosis that we want or that the end result of whatever our current circumstance is will turn out the way that we hoped. But it does mean that God's word, his promises, his purposes for your life and the life of his church will not fail any more than grass could rise up and conquer the wind. And the, the part about the, the beauty uh, or the uh, goodness or the faithfulness being like the flowers, it means that it doesn't depend on our beautiful but temporary faithfulness either. It doesn't depend on us at all. And that's a good thing because, again, our faithfulness is only so strong it only lasts for so long. God has said that he would bring his people from their exile. And his promises are unstoppable. And then in verses 9 to 11, God is the undeterred shepherd. So God the shepherd is coming. He's coming with might and power to rule over his sheep, but not with cruelty like the Babylonian rulers, but as verse 11 says, to tend his flock like a shepherd. He is tender toward his sheep. He gathers them in his arms. He holds them close to his heart. How beautiful of an image is that? Remember when you were little and you were hurt and you could run and jump in your mother's or your father's arms and all the troubles of the world could go away when you were in that place. And that is what God is doing. He's taking us up into his arms, holding us close to his heart. And uh, a key truth out of this section is that God is enthusiastic about you and he is zealous for your salvation. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't, he's not even mad at you when you sin, but he does hate your sin. And he is zealous about freeing you from the stranglehold that your sin has on you. So, uh, so those first 11 verses speak to God's desire, his willingness to save us. He is zealous for us. And that's great, but what about his ability to save? That's what verses 12 to 26 speak to. Can God save us? Didn't Babylon overcome him to defeat Jerusalem? Or more specifically, didn't the gods and idols of Babylon overcome their God? Furthermore, as I said before, there's no evidence in history prior to this of any exiles ever having been set free and sent back to their own home. So for God or his prophets to make this claim, it was a big claim. It would be a hard one to believe. So the first thing that Isaiah points to here 
is that their God is the infinite creator. And we see that in verses 12 to 14, and also in verse 21. When I was in high school, I learned about the mathematical principles of infinity. That infinity, uh, you could add anything to infinity and it doesn't change its value. Infinity plus the biggest number that you could think of is infinity, right? Or infinity divided by the biggest number you could think of is still infinity. In, and, and you could take the biggest number that you could think of and divide it by infinity, and infinity is so much greater that the result is zero. And I was doing a little research on, on the number Googleplex. You're familiar with the number Googleplex. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous number, but uh, if the entire breadth of the universe was completely filled with sand so that there was no room for even one more grain of sand, that would be about a Googleplex of grains of sand. So that's a lot. That's a big number. And yet, add that to infinity, and it has not increased one bit. And so, uh, you, so the principles there of infinity are that, in, that the finite, it cannot be compared with the infinite, and the infinite has the power to make the finite irrelevant. And God is infinite. Therefore, nothing in creation can compare with him. Nothing is too much for him because nothing amounts to anything in comparison. His infinite knowledge means he has no need of counselors or teachers. His infinite power means he has no need of help to do anything that he wants to do. His infinite vastness means that everything else is less than puny, even the Incredible Hulk. And Isaiah puts it this way in our text. He says, all the waters of all the oceans, the seas, the rivers, the lakes, and clouds, he could measure in the palm of his hand like a little droplet. All the vastness of our universe he can measure with a span. And if you remember, at least in our study of, of Goliath, that a span is the distance from here to here. So that's all the vastness of the universe to God. And in fact, these, this is understating it because God is infinite. Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? He has understood all things from the foundations of the earth, before the foundations of the earth. So one advantage that God has over the gods of Babylon is that he is infinite and they are not. Another that we get here from these verses is that God is the sole and transcendent creator of all things. That's a pretty big advantage too. So there's the, these rhetorical questions. Who has measured? Whom did he consult? Who taught him? And these are meant to get the people to see that. Nobody. He is not... Uh, and he's transcendent. He is not the mountain or the seas. He is other than these. He is above and beyond them, outside of them, and yet possessing them and over them and free to shape them however he wants. In Babylonian and other Near Eastern religions, their gods needed counselors to advise them. But God is the originator of all counsel and all wisdom and all knowledge, and he is the possessor of them. True understanding starts with God and only can come from Him. So that's uh, our infinite creator. Then in verses 15 to 17, Isaiah says that He is the supreme ruler over all other rulers. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are accounted as the dust on the scales. So if you have a bucket of water and you dump it out, there's always a, a drop or two left in there. Uh, but you regard it as completely empty. And dust 
is going to be on your scales when you're measuring something, but you don't worry about it because it adds absolutely nothing to the weight of one side or the other. And that's the point he's making here. In other words, if you take the three superpowers of the ancient world that Israel lived in, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, put them on the scale, they don't move it at all. If they were a drop of water in a bucket, God would regard the bucket as empty. Verse 17, it says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. And that is the power of the infinite over the finite. They are inconsequential, not because God overlooked them, but because in reality they are nothing by comparison, less than nothing. As God sits on his throne in heaven, all the activities of all the mighty deeds of man are like little grasshoppers hopping around. I love that illustration. And you could ask uh, my cat, Cricket, uh, just how uh, much power a grasshopper has because she is an expert at catching crickets, or I mean grasshoppers. She, she's Cricket, they are grasshoppers. But she can catch them and bring them for us and share them with the family. And uh, these are grasshoppers that are grasshoppers to God, not just to our cat. They're even less significant. The difference between a grasshopper and the Babylonian Empire or for us today, China, or Russia, or America even, is negligible. The difference between a grasshopper and the mightiest nation is negligible compared to God. All their efforts are like a seed that has barely sown and sprouted, and then along comes God, he blows on them once, and they are finished. So what troubles are you going through that are too great for a God like that? And then he speaks about the incomparable God. God is not just a greater power than the Babylonians or their idols. He is the only God. Isaiah, uh, many times in his book, this is the first place where he, where he does this little diatribe against idols. And each time he does it, they get more humorous. But here uh, he contrasts in verses 18 to 20, with an idol, and he talks about how while God is sitting enthroned above all things, an idol has to be carefully built in such a way that it won't topple over on its own. It cannot keep itself upright, but God is constantly at work keeping everything upright. And since God is transcendent, he's not the world nor a mere inhabitant of the world. Any attempt to represent him in the forms of the things of this world has deadly consequences. Uh, and to do so reduces him to a being of this world like us, which is so often what we're trying to do, to recreate God in our own image. And then he says that God cannot be compared with the starry host. Many ancient cultures worship the starry host or the heavenly host. So Isaiah invites us to ask ourselves as we look at the stars, but who created these? Where did they come from? God is in charge of all of them. He summons them to appear, and every one of them appears. They always obey their creator and master, who is strong in power. And then finally, in verses 27 to 31, waiting in the wings for salvation. Verse, uh, verse 27 is a, uh, a powerful reminder for us when we are in a place of either frustration or despondency, he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right 
is disregarded by my God. Now sometimes when uh, a psalmist or somebody says, my way is hidden from the Lord, they're talking about somebody who thinks they're getting away with their sin. But the point here is that these people are suffering and they think that God can't see it, that he isn't noticing it. And have you ever been there before in your life where you felt like God does not see me? He does not know or understand what I'm going through. Maybe you're even there today. Does God even notice my troubles, my pain, my misery? Misery? Maybe my circumstance is just too small or hasn't risen to the level of importance for him to care about it. Too low of a priority for him to attend to it. Now these words, they could seem to be offensive and certainly they needed their thinking about God to be corrected. But God in his response here, he's only concerned that they know the truth, that they know his peace, that they know that he has noticed, that he is for them. And so Isaiah reminds them who God is. His resources are inexhaustible. He is the everlasting, the creator of everything. He does not grow tired, which I think includes that he does not grow bored with our troubles. Even though we get into the same troubles over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, he does not get tired of helping us out of that same situation. He's very patient. He's not perplexed by our troubles. Nothing that confounds us troubles his understanding. So if God has promised to return the ex exiles to their land, it is going to happen. Nothing could prevent it from happening. If God has made a promise to you, and he has, and the Bible is full of examples of promises of God, those promises stand firm. But like the exiles, we need to be reminded too. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness and his promises. And like Isaiah, we need to remind one another of God's faithfulness and those truths. Isaiah reminds them who God is. And then in verses 29 to 31, he reminds them of God's person. He reminds them of God's wonderful desire and ability to give strength to the weak, the exhausted, the weary, whoever waits for the Lord. He is for them. He is never unaware. He is fully engaged. God's power is perfected in our weakness. Who has the most energy in this world? Probably young children, right? They just run around and around and around. Yet eventually they too will collapse in a heap of exhaustion. They are not self-generating. They need to uh, receive outside resources for strength and energy. But God is not like that. He is the power generator. He will cause them to run and not be weary. He will raise them up on eagles' wings. And this promises those who wait for the Lord. And waiting is not an idle activity. It is an intentional act of looking to God, not running ahead of Him, but waiting to let Him lead you and living in a confident expectation. So what do you do when you are tired, worn out, exhausted by life? Feeling like you just can't take one more day of this. Do you stop or do you turn to God? And how do these verses here encourage you? Do they give you hope that turning to God, He could do something about that exhaustion. He could re-energize you. He could do what He says right here that He will do for you if you wait on Him. God doesn't tell the weary and the weak, you've got to figure this out. You've got to muster the energy and the strength yourself. 
He says those who wait on Him, He will supply the lack. So where do you need endurance to be lifted up on eagle's wings? So in light of all this, what enemies are we facing today that God cannot beat? All our troubles and fears and problems are finite and they are of this world. Thus, they are nothing compared to God. So why do we still have suffering? Well, that's a discussion for another time probably, but for now, uh, conquering is not the same as being pain-free. Remember Jesus' words at the end of John 16 when he said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Or think of Jeremiah when he was called by God to be a prophet and God was preparing him for the struggles ahead and the resistance he was going to receive. And God tells him, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us on this earth alone, but that you have given us another counselor, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and is not far off, but is always immediately present. Help us, Lord, to remember to turn to you, to wait on you, to trust in you. Help us to be an encouragement to one another to give that strength and that comfort to one another as we wait. God, we pray that uh, you would help us in the moments that are far from pain-free, that are difficult and exhausting. Help us to keep our eye on you and remember this is a light and momentary trouble. But we have glory with you forever ahead of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.